Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Vanessa Spina. She's a sports nutrition specialist and the best-selling author of Keto Essentials. She's also an international speaker and the host of the popular Optimal Protein Podcast and the co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast as well. She also has a background in biomedical science from the University of Toronto. Today, we dove into her really interesting background going from being an international stockbroker to being interested in nutrition and biomedical sciences. We spoke at great length about protein recommended daily allowances, the leucine threshold, the role of strength training and metabolic health, common misconceptions about the ketogenic diet, why the scale is a liar, the role of DEXA scans and changes in body composition, the importance of mitochondrial health, and discussions about ways to support mitochondrial health, including red light therapy, cold thermogenesis, micronutrients, and structured supplementation. I wanted to briefly express gratitude for a recent podcast review from Mark Kilborn. Cynthia Thurlow continues to provide such important and useful information for all women. Her guests are high-level experts in their fields. The content has been extremely helpful and meaningful to me. The amount of information and knowledge I've gained regarding women's hormones and cycles in the last few months is more than I've ever gotten from doctors or school in my lifetime. Thank you so much. Now, let's get back to the podcast today with Vanessa Spina. We had a really amazing conversation. I hope that you will find it as beneficial and information-packed as I did. Welcome, Vanessa. It's such a pleasure to connect with you on my podcast. I've had the honor of being a guest on your own and welcome back to the States to visit with family. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm uh, so honored to be here with you on your amazing podcast. And yeah, uh, so happy to be back in the US for a little bit. Yeah. And I think I love starting the conversation, just acknowledging that you and your beautiful family live in one of our favorite cities in the whole world. Prague is a gem. If listeners have not traveled there. I cannot tell you how much we loved our time in Prague. And my teenagers still talk about how much it was like one of their favorite cities they've ever been to. What a blessing to be able to raise a family there. Tell us how you got to where you are right now. Cause I think you have such an interesting, and you were telling me before we started recording that you grew up traveling the world. And so how did you get to where you are now with this wonderful science background, living internationally with your family? How did you get from point A to point B? Yeah, it's not the most um, like sort of logical A to B (laughs) kind of trajectory. I definitely grew up overseas, which was such an incredible gift because, you know, as you know, from traveling, it's just the most amazing way to learn about the world and learn about other cultures. And my parents were big adventurers. So I was born in Africa and then we were posted in China for a lot of my life for about almost six and a half years. And then finally I finished high school in the Philippines. So I was at international schools overseas. And then I settled back in Canada and I actually first started out in finance and I was working in this, I had my stockbroker's license. I was working in the markets and I loved it. It was really following one of my passions, which is, you know, finance, but I never felt really like fulfilled internally from what I was doing. Like I felt like I was making wealthy people wealthier and like, it was just a lot of like excitement, but it wasn't that fulfilling. So my electives in university were always nutrition because that was my sort of passion. And I I had sort of started this hobby account on Instagram sharing keto recipes because I had gotten into intermittent fasting and keto myself And it just absolutely took off at the time. I think it was just like lined up perfectly with the trajectory of keto going crazy. And I had, it got so busy. I started making meal plans and programs. This is in like 2015. And I had to leave my finance job to do it full time. And at part of that, we moved to Prague at the same time from Vancouver. And 
it was just amazing because it gave me like time and space to be able to create. And you know, you've been there. It's, it's such a creative place. You know, they were so closed for so long and now there's like this opening up and this sort of flowering of ideas and creativity. And there's all these writers and poets and people who used to go to like Paris and Berlin. They're like, they're all in Prague. It's, it's an amazing place to create. And then I wrote my first book, Keto Essentials from Prague. I was just sitting in cafes and writing there and it was just a dream. And since then I started to find myself more and more interested in the science of nutrition because I had studied nutrition, you know, off and on over the years and was really self-taught. So I went back and got my sports nutritionist, um, sports nutrition specialist specialization. And then I found that I was getting really frustrated by seeing all the debates online, you know, the diet wars and, you know, people would debate endlessly about things like gluconeogenesis. And I was like, I just want to understand for myself what all this means. So then I went back to school. I went to the University of Toronto and did a two-year biomedical science program. And I just studied biochem and physiology and even at the end sort of pharmacology, which was really interesting because, you know, as you, you know, you learn the different pathways and the first pass metabolism and all this stuff. So it really just helped me to understand everything, but it also enabled me on the podcast to be able to have deeper conversations with people and ultimately go a little bit beyond sort of the conversations I, you know, might've been having otherwise. So it kind of a, not the most linear path to where I am, but it's worked out really beautifully. And I'm, I'm very happy being here and learning about the science. I realized that there's a different approach to keto that could be more advantageous in terms of a lot of people are coming to keto for body recomposition and recomposing their body. And I think if, you know, if your goal is sort of health issues or managing different conditions, you know, medical or ketogenic, you know, a traditional macros are great, but if you're coming to it for like fat loss and gaining some muscle lean mass, the traditional keto macros are not really optimal. So that's what I sort of made it my mission to you know, talk about on the optimal protein podcast is how do we optimize body composition? You can do, you know, a different approach, like a modified ketogenic diet and just trying to open it up a little bit more broadly, not just the people who are in keto, but for anyone to understand what is an optimal protein, you know, intake look like and, and mean. So I'm happy that I ended up in this space right here. Cool. And I love that you have this curiosity to kind of pursue your dreams, your interests, and to be a lifelong learner, because I think that's so important. I think so many of us get stuck, either we're stuck in a job or we're stuck in, you know, these dogmatic principles that no longer serve us and people are afraid to pivot and change their minds. And so I really love that you authentically made your way into the biomedical sciences. And now you have a platform where you can help educate people, you know, take the the science and make it accessible for others mm-hmm. because not everyone is comfortable reading the scientific literature or trying to interpret the research. And certainly there's so much misinformation that's conveyed in the media. And then you really look at the research that someone's basing things on. And you're like, wait a minute, this isn't even good research. This is yeah. anecdotal research, which I mean, that's where things can stem from. Good ideas may come from that, but being able to make sense of a lot of good information slash misinformation that's out there. What do you think are some of the common misconceptions about ketogenic diets? You know, things that you feel like are higher level concepts that maybe people misunderstand or misinterpret. I know I have some biases or things where I'm like, I think this is where people are really getting it wrong. But in your experience clinically and on the podcast, what are some of the common misconceptions that you see? Oh, I love this question so much. So we talked about how a lot of people coming to keto come to it for fat loss and approaching keto with the traditional macros. I think it can be initially helpful for making the switch. You know, there's this metabolic switch, as you know, that you go into where your body can preferentially burn, you know, primarily fat and not so much sugar. And I think that that can really help people, especially if they want to get into intermittent fasting and become more fat fueled and not sort of stuck in that paradigm where you're only really, you know, a glucose burner. I think it can help, you know, to lower carb intake gradually, you know, to start focusing on maybe consuming some more healthy fats instead of, you know, just depending on carbs for your energy. And I think that it can be a great way to sort of transition into that mode, because as you know, from doing intermittent fasting, 
it really helps. And it's in a big advantage. If you are a little bit, you know, more fat fueled and able to do that, you'll feel better going for longer between meals and kind of goes hand in hand with keto in a lot of ways. But if your goal primarily for doing keto is doing some body recomposition, and by that, I mean, recomposing your body to have a little bit less fat mass and to have either maintain or gain some lean mass and muscle then, and also have strong bones, which goes together with the protein and, and lean mass, then I would say a better approach might be to do a modified ketogenic diet. So what that looks like is a traditional ketogenic diet is about 85% fat intake, about 10 to 15% on the protein, and then, you know, zero to five on the carbohydrate and some mix on that. And a modified ketogenic diet is closer to 65% fat, 35% protein, and around, you know, five to 10% carb. And so one of the scientists I really looked up, look up to is a scientist who did a lot of work showing that modified ketogenic diets can actually get a lot of the same benefits as traditional ketogenic diets, but they actually are much easier to sustain long-term versus doing, you know, the sort of really high fat. And I was someone who never really liked that approach of just eating lots of fats. I much prefer to eat healthy proteins. So I just think it's a lot more sustainable for people long-term. It's a lifestyle that people can do. And I think the second biggest misconception is that your intake of, you know, when I talk about that 65 or 85% of your calories coming from fat, that all of that has to come from your food. Because if your goal is to burn some fat, then you probably want a little bit of a mix there of some of that fat coming from your meal and some of that also coming from your stored body fat. And if you don't create any kind of deficit there, then I think it's going to be hard to actually get real weight loss and sustainable fat loss. So, you know, I'm a big believer in the endocrine, you know, hormonal approaches to, to understanding weight loss and fat loss. But I also think that it's important to look at the calories because there's so much science showing if you want to lose some weight, you have to create some kind of caloric deficit. So you can create a bit of a caloric deficit by cutting back a bit on the fat and bumping up the protein percentage, and you're going to displace some of the fat intake. And I think that if you're in a, a weight loss or fat loss phase, that that can really be helpful for that, whether you're doing keto or not. Yeah. I think you bring up such good points. And this for me is why personally, I could never tolerate a traditional ketogenic diet. I am someone that just does better with leaner meat, leaner fish, less fat in my diet. I mean, that's just personally what works really well. I get nauseous if I'm eating a lot of fats. And so people will characteristically say, well, maybe there's something wrong with your gallbladder. I was like, no, no, my gallbladder is fine. It's just for me personally, I can't eat a stick of butter and eat a ribeye and feel good. Like that will make me completely nauseous. However, I know that works for some people. Yes. And I find for women in particular that we get into trouble with too much healthy fats. Cause think about the things that are delicious and also have a lot of healthy fats in them. Like I think about nuts and I think about dairy and, and cheese in particular, it's very hard to stick to portions. And sometimes I will actually say to women, if you measure nothing else, but nuts and cheese, you are probably eating two, three, four times the amount of one serving, then you realize, and that may be what is contributing to the plateau, the weight loss resistance. It might very well be to your point that you are not eating in a caloric deficit, that you are actually eating in a caloric excess. And that is why you're not seeing the results that you're looking for. Yes. And I fully agree on, on both those points. And I think one of the ways that I kind of go against the keto, you know, sort of, I guess, rhetoric is maybe controversial is I'm a big actually a proponent of dairy, but low fat dairy, because dairy is such an amazing food for building lean mass, especially for women, but it has to be low fat because by being low fat, it becomes high protein dairy. And people in the keto space tend to go for all the, you know, the high fat dairy. And that's exactly what they run into, you know, that issue that you were bringing up and the same thing with the nuts. But if you do low fat dairy, it's an amazing tool. It's so calcium rich, which is great, you know, for bones. And it's such a great source of protein. I know some women, as you know, have a hard time hitting like a higher protein intake and, you know, dairy, like low fat yogurt, some low fat cheeses you know, are really helpful tools to get, you know, help you reach your protein target for the day. Well, and it's interesting. Yesterday I interviewed 
Sally Norton and Sally's kind of area of expertise are oxalates. And she mm-hmm. was saying, you know, the people who are at greater risk for not getting enough calcium in, and she mentioned, you know, the people that are dairy free. And she said, and I understand why a lot of women choose to be dairy free. And then what they do is they then overload themselves on these calcium rich oxalate laden foods. And so she said, it's all about finding balance, finding out what do you tolerate? And so Mm -hmm. she was actually encouraging me. She said, you know, privately when we were talking, she said, you know, maybe it's time to introduce some low fat dairy because (laughs) you don't tolerate the kale and the spinach and the celery. And so I promised her I would, I was like, you know, I haven't done dairy for five years, but I will, I will go buy some non-fat, you know, Greek yogurt, (laughs) that's unflavored and I will try it and I'll, I'll report back on how that works for me. But I agree with you that it's finding sometimes these nutrient deficiencies can be quite profound. I know that our mutual friend, Marty Kendall, who's absolutely wonderful, yes. is always talking about micronutrient deficiencies yes. and how important they are. And I think we sometimes focus so much on protein, fat, and carbs, and then don't realize that in many other ways we can be deficient in these micronutrients that can have a lot to do with cravings, how we feel, success mm. that we're having, et cetera. Yes. Marty is great. And he's always reminding us to get those micronutrients. And I love the work that he does. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. One of my favorite ways to take care of my health is to consider targeted supplementation. And one of my favorite supplements that I take on a daily basis is MitoPure. It has 15 years worth of research, 11 human clinical trials, 300 studies already on urolithin A, and it is one of those supplements that can help support healthy aging. MitoPure is the first and only clinically tested, highly pure urolithin A postbiotic. And unlike dietary sources like pomegranate juice, MitoPure delivers efficacious levels of urolithin A. The soft gels combined are a thousand milligrams and the powder, which is my favorite, is 500 milligrams in each packet. I've seen significant increases in not only my strength in the gym, but also my VO2 max, which I recently had tested earlier this month. And we know that healthy aging is really dependent on the health of our mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. And every aspect of health and well-being is really dependent on mitochondrial health, whether it be our bodies, our immune systems, our brain, our gut, skin, muscle. We know that mitochondrial health is absolutely essential. Mitopure actually triggers our body's natural mitochondrial repair processes, rebuilding and replacing damaged mitochondria with new ones, which leads to increased cellular energy, as well as muscle strength and endurance. Mitopure is one of a kind. It's backed by science that I trust. It does what no other supplement can do, and I recommend you try it for yourself. To save 10% on your first purchase, go to www.timelinenutrition.com and use code Cynthia for 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's timelinenutrition.com and use code Cynthia for 10% off. So when we're talking about protein and we pivot a little bit, and obviously I know we're both huge proponents of the essential needs of protein, let's talk about the recommended daily allowance or the (laughs) RDA, understanding that this is not a threshold at which we should aspire to, that we really do need to consume more protein than what is recommended by most governmental guidelines And I can speak from, on behalf of middle-aged women, we actually need more. We are in a catabolic state as we get older, where our body will break down muscle in response to hormonal changes. So when you're helping to educate your listeners and talk to your clients about this, how do you approach the protein? You know, we talk about protein leverage hypothesis. We talk about the protein RDA 
and helping people make sense of the fact that we have very likely been given poor information about this very important macronutrient for a very long time. I love this question and this topic because what actually stunned me was finding out that the RDA that and RDI have, that have been set for protein were set during wartime rationing in the UK to set a minimum to avoid disease because they were trying to figure out what they could do for rationing to, for their population. And they haven't been revised since, despite the fact that some of the researchers I admire the most in this space who spent their whole careers studying amino acids and protein, like Dr. Stu Phillips and Dr. Don Lehman, uh, Gabrielle's mentor, and they've written open letters to these organizations to try to get them to revise their protein intakes, especially for our aging population. And it's almost criminal, like how low the protein, you know, intakes are set at. And also there's all this misinformation online. Like if you Google, you know, sources of protein, like if you're pregnant or something, you'll, it'll say like chickpeas are an amazing source of protein. So there's a lack of information. And also there's like misinformation out there. So there's a lot that people need to understand. I think one of the core concepts I love talking about. So you, you mentioned that as we age, we have higher rates of muscle protein breakdown, which is occurring every day. And in order to combat against that, we need to make sure to have high rates of muscle protein synthesis every day. And in order to do that, we have to eat meals that contain enough protein at each meal that it will raise the amount of leucine, which is a branch chain amino acid in the blood to trigger this leucine threshold. And what's so key about this is that when you are say in your early twenties, like you can just look at protein and build muscle, but when you're getting older, the leucine threshold is the most affected by age. So if you're sort of like between 20 and, you know, if you're in your thirties and forties, like you probably need around two to three grams of leucine at a meal, which is about 30 grams of protein. But when you start getting, you know, into your fifties and sixties, seventies, it's possible that you may actually need double that amount of leucine. And who do we know out there who's in their seventies and eighties, who's eating that much protein? Like barely anyone is there's lots of different strategies and things and sort of workarounds that we can do. Cause I know that uh, people tend to eat less as they get older and they don't want to eat like huge plates of, you know, chicken breast and steak, but there's certain things that you can do like combining protein meal with some BCAAs, for example, can enhance and raise the level of leucine at that meal to make sure that you trigger muscle protein synthesis. So you, you want to be doing that at least two to three times a day to make sure that you just maintain, you know, the muscle that you have, let alone being able to maybe put some more muscle on as well. And it's really, it's not just for bodybuilders, like, or physique competitors, like we are all bodybuilders. We're building our bodies every day or we're, they're being taken down with the muscle protein breakdown. And so if we don't keep up with that, then those rates of muscle protein breakdown are going to exceed the muscle protein synthesis. And it's such a key concept is understanding you know, that you need to get a certain amount of leucine at each meal. For most people, that looks like around 30 grams. And Dr. Don Lehman is the scientist who, you know, spent his whole career studying this, like how much leucine do we actually need to trigger muscle protein synthesis and, you know, to make sure you're getting an adequate amount. And then there's ways of supplementing, you know, with like whey protein shakes, adding BCAAs. And if you can also making sure to do some kind of resistance training, it's all going to be triggers that, you know, in the, tell the body signals to the body that we need that muscle. We need to hold on to it. It's precious and we're using it and, and we need it. I think, you know, and I always give Gabrielle credit. We spoke yeah. at an event together in 2020. And the first thing she said to me, other than being incredibly polite, coming up to me and introducing herself was, I bet you're not eating enough protein. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I think, and I always like to give her credit because it really mm -hmm. shifted my whole perspective. I mean, I immediately shifted to more protein, like more protein, larger quantities of meat, you know, even getting more, you know, during the pandemic, because very few people could shop, we started ordering some exotic meats. So we had wild boar, we had elk, we had Loves bison, bison. <laughs> yeah, which it makes me laugh because I thought that was yeah. so exotic and people yeah. are listening and probably thinking that's not so exotic, but for us, that was different yeah. and just really experimenting with how do I feel when I have 40 grams of protein? How do I feel when I have 50 grams of protein? How do I feel when I have 60 grams of protein, which is where I kind of hover with most meals. Cause I'm really getting two like large boluses of food within my feeding window. And now it is allowed me to help women understand that 
more than likely they're not eating enough protein. They are very likely over consuming the wrong types of carbohydrates. And I don't want to villainize carbs, but you know, the stuff that is less processed is always going to be healthier for you and helping people understand that, you know, seed oils are problematic, you know, in a way and, and to a degree, especially here in the United States that I think most people don't even understand how proliferative they are in our processed foods. Like the number one consumed fat in the United States, according to Ben Bickman, uh, is soybean oil, which is horrific yeah. when you think about it, but it just shows you that it's just proliferative in our foods. And so let's talk a little bit about the impact of sarcopenia. So this muscle loss with aging, it's not a question of if, but when really accelerates after the age of 40, you know, when you're in the literature, what are the recommended frequency at which we need to be doing strength training. And it's more than just body weight. If that's a starting point, that's fine. But we actually have to, it's from what I understand, like time under tension, but it also has to be challenging, like to the point where not that you can't move the next day, but you want to have some degree of fatigue in your muscle when you're lifting so that it's not just easy. Like you can get through 20 reps and you're not sweating, your heart rate's not up. How do we determine what the right threshold is? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think, you know, people tend to forget that our bones are also protein, they're mineralized protein. And this is another concept, you know, we always think of like our bones, they are full of calcium. Well, they're full of calcium, but they're also full of of protein and they're full of minerals and our bodies store those minerals in the bones. So, you know, if we are deficient in some of those minerals, we can access them from our bones. But part of of making sure to get enough protein and doing resistance training, as you were saying, is not just for our muscle tissue. It's also for maintaining really strong bones, which I think is one of the, the key, you know, concepts when it comes to maintaining health as we get older. Cause as you know, you know, there are many people like I've had in my family as well, who suffer a fall and break a hip. And like, that's the end at the end of your life, because you could sometimes just have a bad fall and not have strong bones. And, you know, sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity, I think are huge, huge issue that we don't talk about enough. And we need to be talking about it more. And also, you know, physicians, hopefully talking about it more with their patients, you know, different ways. Yes. Eating more calcium is great for your bones, but you also need to eat protein and also get some resistance training in. And I tend to focus on, you know, whatever you're doing now, if you're not doing any exercise at all, doing even one workout a week or two workouts a week with some strength training with any kind of resistance, anytime you're resisting gravity, you are assisting your body in preserving lean mass and, and signaling to the body that you want to hold on to your muscle tissue and build more of it. So you don't need to suddenly join a gym and be in there four or five times a day you know, even just doing two workouts a week as a first goal at home with your body weight is more than enough. And you can do, you know, on YouTube ever since the pandemic. Now there's just so many free videos that people can watch and just using their body weight at home, you know, doing squats and push-ups, and, you know, even without like free weights, you can do so much to really enhance your, your physique and your, your muscle. And in terms of like the specifics for me, it's just more so, are you making consistent progress? So are you able to over time lift heavier and heavier things? I think that's one of the key measures in terms of, are you like going to be successfully building muscle? And, you know, if you're not making any progress, then there may be some kind of issue with like the number of repetitions or, you know, the way that it's being approached me, there may be something that needs to be tweaked. Um, But over time, you should be able to progress in terms of your level of of strength and the amount of of weight that you can, you know, successfully lift. Uh, It's certainly important. And and, uh, one thing that's a big takeaway, falls are obviously a huge issue. And falling and breaking a hip is a prognostic indicator of morbidity and mortality. And so I always remind my family members in particular that hip fractures are not benign. And in many instances, um, you know, if you really look at the statistics, a lot of patients, when they fall and break a hip, many of them will die within a year. And so it's just understanding that that degree of frailty is something that we want to really work against and we want to help prevent. I remember 
years ago when I was still rounding in the hospitals and I would see some of my patients that were in their fifties that could not get off a bedside commode, which is the bedside toilet, because they had such atrophy of muscles in their legs because they weren't using them. I think it's, we have this increasingly sedentary society and this is why I think our voices are so important to encourage people to, um, you know, even if you're just doing body weight exercises, as you mentioned, you know, getting on YouTube and looking at resources there, you know, talking to your healthcare practitioner, if they have specific referrals for physical therapy, many people need to start with physical therapy as a, as a starting point, but how important it is to understand that interrelationship between metabolic health and muscle health. And there was this one study that I was looking at. It was saying a 10% increase in skeletal muscle equals 11% reduction in insulin resistance and a 12% drop in risk of prediabetes. More muscle mass results in higher energy expenditure due to protein turnover, which helps reduce risk of obesity. So understand that a 10% increase in skeletal muscle, I mean, that sounds like a lot, but helping you understand that it's this glucose reservoir, it's this ability to allow us to remain insulin sensitive. And again, as much as I hate to harp on the fact that middle age is when these things really start to accelerate, how important it is to you know, adjust what you're doing. You know, I find a lot of women as they're getting into their thirties and forties, they're still doing like long chronic cardio. And I just remind them, I'm like that hour you're spending running, you could literally just spend 30 minutes lifting weights and the potentiality of what would come from that physical activity yields so much more in terms of gains for your health than just doing long chronic cardio does. You're so right. And people think that the way to lose fat is to do cardio. And I've compared, you know, the post-exercise calorie burn on doing weights and cardio, and sometimes mine is higher just from doing weights. And at the same time, you're building muscle, which is metabolically active tissue. So you can burn more calories. So in the end, you know, I always try to prioritize for myself, the weight training first. And then if there's time, you know, the cardio or even just going for, you know, walks and that kind of thing, but the resistance training has to be the priority. Absolutely. And where do you think we get so off base focusing in on the scale? I know that I had a conversation on an earlier podcast today saying that I think in many ways, it's just one metric, but many people, especially women, sorry, women, I don't need to be picking on anyone, but it's just been my experience that people get so fixated on that number and it can govern the entire perspective on their day, how they feel about themselves or self-confidence levels. What does the scale not take into account when someone steps on it? Unless it's one of those scales that is measuring body fat versus muscle mass. And there are scales that are out there that are very sophisticated, but I'm talking about the average scale in someone's bathroom or kitchen. Yeah, this is such a great question. And one of the things I love talking about. So in a lot of the science labs where they study the effects of say protein on body composition or just like nutrition on fitness, nobody talks about body weight. You know, nobody talks about body weight. People only talk about their body composition. So what their body fat percentage is and how much lean mass they have. And I honestly think in the future, we'll probably have accurate body composition scanners at home, but because all we have is a scale, I always tell people not to throw them out, but not to rely on them for progress. And I can't tell you how many times I've worked with clients personally who were following my approach with a higher protein intake. And I always recommend getting a DEXA body scan once or twice a year. I wish more than anything that physicians were recommending this annually or every couple of years, You know, not just looking at bone density, but also what else is your body composed of? Because it's such a better metric for truly understanding obesity, especially if you focus on muscle you know, your BMI is going to be higher if you have more muscle and you could be perfectly healthy at a higher weight because you have more muscle. So I've had a lot of situations where I've had clients go in for an, like say they've done, been following my program for a while, go back in for a body scan and they'll step on the scale right before, because sometimes they'll have scales there as well, or the scanner will measure their body weight. And they'll say, oh my gosh, I've put on five pounds. Like, you know, and when they have the scan done, turns out they've gained three, four pounds of muscle and they're down, you know, 4% body fat, which is absolutely 
massive, you know, to do something like that in like eight to 12 weeks is so huge because your body composition really equates to your metabolic health. And if those people had not had a body scan done, they would have stepped on the scale, seen that they were five pounds heavier and been like, none of this is working. I'm gaining weight. You know, I'm just going to go back to whatever I was doing before. So it really like a scale to me is like this barbaric tool that can give you a, maybe a sense of how much you're resisting gravity. But in terms of what your body is actually composed of, it, it, it really gives you such little, you know, clue as to, you know, how, how healthy you are metabolically. So um, one of the things that I've seen is the cost has been coming down uh, on body scanning. And as I recommend that DEXA body scan, there's other forms as well. There's like, you know, air displacement, you know, which is called the bod pod. There's other forms of, of measuring your body composition. There are some bioimpedance scales that people have at home that can at least give people a sense or like, a ballpark sort of a picture or a trend. Uh, but I definitely recommend that at the very least you get a scan once a year or before and after any kind of program, because that's where you're really going to be able to assess like your actual metabolic health, whether you are obese or not based on your body fat and your lean mass. And then also how much protein to eat, you know, because it's a great way to, you know, if you're say going by some of the recommendations like Dr. Stu Phillips, you know, of like doing somewhere around one gram of protein per pound of, of lean body mass or ideal body weight, then you can also figure out like how much protein to be targeting every day. So it provides so much useful information. Well, I'd love that you brought up the DEXA because this is low radiation, inexpensive, covered by insurance. I think for many women, they probably get a DEXA if they're lucky in their thirties and forties, and they definitely probably might get one in their fifties. And for me, we've been tracking mine because osteoporosis runs in my family. I'm a thin Caucasian woman. I definitely have this family history component. You better believe I lift heavy weights because to me, preserving bone mass is so important. And I'm supposed to have one next month to kind of, you know, look at that progress, but it really does give you a breakdown. It'll give you information about your body fat percentage. It gives information about, you know, the health of your bones, or at least an approximation. I always say it's not always the best test for bones, but it gives you an approximation. And as you mentioned, you know, the bod pod is a great option if you have that available to you. And amazingly in my area, we have bod pods and I've actually done that before. It's like you get into a little egg in a bathing suit <laughs> and it takes all the air out. And then it actually gives you really interesting information about, you know, your body fat, body composition, which I think is so helpful. And I love that you reaffirm the fact that the scale is just one teeny tiny metric. And if you were to compare the data that you get from that scale versus what you're getting from a DEXA, you could get yourself completely like ruin your entire week yeah. versus you, you do the DEXA scan and you realize you're actually in a position where you've gained lean muscle and lost body fat, but that's not reflected properly on that regular scale and why it's so important to dig a little bit deeper. Yes. And as a personal anecdote on the other side, it can also help you to figure out if you are someone who is, you know, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, which is what I was for years. And I would go see my doctor and he's like, you know, your BMI is fine. Like you're not overweight, like stop focusing on this. And I just knew I didn't feel body confident. I didn't feel fit. I didn't feel energized. And I finally had my first body composition scan. And the scan tech thought that there was a mistake because I had 38% body fat. And he's like, there's no way looking at you that you have 38 body, 38%. But I carried it really well. And because I'm tall, my BMI showed up in the normal range, but 38% body fat is, especially when you're in your twenties is not a good place to be uh, knowing that that number, if I hadn't have made some big changes would have probably continued to progress. I could have ended up morbidly obese if I had continued with the lifestyle I was doing at the time, you know, which I thought was healthy. I was doing like a high carb vegan diet. And as long as it was vegan, I thought it was healthy. And that included so many processed foods. And I was just doing lots of cardio and I just wasn't healthy and I didn't feel good. And then when I started understanding the body composition and doing this sort of optimal protein, protein prioritized approach where I, you know, I'll eat anywhere from 35 to 40% protein. I got my body fat down to 21%. And that was while I was in school 
doing the biomedical science program. And I wasn't even working out very much because I was just studying so much. So protein can have a huge impact. And I've had so many guests on my podcast who have said, even just eating more protein and increasing the protein percentage, even if you're not working out can make a huge difference. And I saw it for myself just in changing up my macros you know, I wasn't really eating that many different calories, but I changed my macros up. I really increased the protein percentage, which led to so much satiety. I felt full for the first time in my life, thanks to the amazing protein leverage uh, concept by um, Robinheimer and Simpson, you know, who came up with this concept that we basically overeat on, on energy calories of carbohydrate and fat until we get enough protein. And, you know, I finally felt full for the first time in my life. And now I feel like I can just maintain the sort of effortlessly lean body composition. And the the key really has been, you know, changing up the protein, but also understanding body composition um, and and not just looking at the scale. Cause I, I never would have been able to make those changes if I just went by BMI and, and the scale. Isn't it amazing? Because I know, you know, a lot of my work is really focused on women in perimenopause and menopause and helping them understand that if you're not eating enough food. So I think that it's really important if if people choose to fast that they get enough protein in that feeding window. And so have helping people understand that if you're eating one meal a day, I don't know how you're ever going to hit that protein threshold that you need to hit. And this explains why women will say to me, um, you know, I'm not hungry because my my body thinks I'm starving. So it's going to just take what it can and it's going to assimilate what it receives. But that explains why they're having all these cravings. They're like, you know, once my feeding window opens, I feel like I can eat everything and anything. And it goes along with that principle of your body is seeking. If it's not going to get the protein it's looking for, it is going to seek it through means of probably highly processed, hyperpalatable foods to get to that caloric intake that it's ideally looking for. And, and I think on every level, um, what I love about your work is that you really are very, very clear about how attainable that protein piece is and why that really leads to improvement in metabolic health markers, not just the body composition, but all these more important metrics that we're talking about. So when we're talking about metabolic health, we're really talking about mitochondrial health. And so what are some of your favorite ways to help support the mitochondria? And, and I want to make sure that we are inclusive of my new favorite device that I've been playing around with for the last you know six to eight weeks, talking about red light therapy. So making sure that we tie that into the conversation, because I think mitochondrial health is really at the basis for whether we are metabolically healthy or unhealthy, helping us understand that these powerhouses of ourselves are really at the basis for, you know, whether or not we are insulin sensitive, whether we are able to be able to use different types of substrates for energy, et cetera. Okay. You might have to reel me in a little bit here because I (laughs) am so passionate about this topic. I've been studying it and really making it a focus on, on the podcast for the last year. And it's really been absolutely mind-blowing to understand more about the mitochondria and, and how they work and how we can support them. Because I think, especially when we're talking about health span and longevity, it's one of the major, major keys. So one of the main ways really is exercise. And we were just talking about different forms of exercise, but what's really fascinating about the mitochondria is, you know, many people know them as the powerhouse of the cell. They're making, you know, energy for us in the form of ATP. And how they do that is by moving electrons along this electron transport chain. We have about anywhere from 500 to a thousand mitochondria in every cell. And, you know, we've got over 30 trillion cells. So, I mean, just it's an incredible number of mitochondria that we have. And then there's inside of all those mitochondria, there's so many electron transport chains making ATP. And there's a couple of really fascinating things that I've been learning about them. But one of the, one of the really interesting things is that if someone is in a situation where they're not doing a lot of movement and they tend to be more sedentary and they're also consuming more food, they also find themselves often to be tired. And doesn't really make sense. It's like, well, I've got all this energy stored in my body. Why am I tired? And what's really fascinating about the mitochondria is if there is an excess of, of energy consumed 
and not enough movement, then electrons start to build up in the electron transport chain and the whole system kind of shuts down. And so it kind of is the main reason why people who don't move a lot also don't feel very energetic and you have to move your body in order to keep those electrons flowing and keep your mitochondria making energy for you. And this is like one of those mind blowing, like mind blowing moments that I had in learning about them. Another key concept, which is really interesting is that when, if you eat a diet, that's really high in processed and refined carbohydrates versus eating more whole foods, not only does it lower your metabolic rate. And that's been proven in, in some studies, but also one of the things that causes a lot of cellular damage is free radicals. And what happens at the level of the electron transport chain is as electrons are being passed down the chain from protein complex to protein complex, they can get lost. And it's actually at the first step on the electron transport chain where the most electrons are lost. And that's when electrons are coming in from the glucose pathway from carbohydrates. And when those electrons are lost, they become known as free radicals or unpaired electrons. And that can cause damage to the cell, but also to the mitochondria because mitochondria have their own DNA and their DNA is right in the in the cytosol. It's not protected in the nucleus like our DNA is. So when there's a lot of free radicals, our mitochondria get damaged from that. There's also a lot of, you know, just um, other sort of free radicals that can occur along the, the electron transport chain. But if you are eating a diet that is lowering carb, a lot of your electrons are going to come in through the second step. So you're going to lose less electrons. You're going to cause less free radical damage, and that's going to help preserve the integrity of the mitochondria and keep them healthy. Uh, a lot of research has shown that doing fasted exercise really boosts mitochondrial biogenesis or the genesis of, of new mitochondria. Um, and what's really interesting as well is that if you are doing a lower carb diet that is, you know, not necessarily keto, but a lower carb diet that is higher in protein, you can still get up to two thirds of the benefits of mitochondrial biogenesis, even if you do your workout after eating food. So it's basically in the absence of really a high carbohydrate intake that your body will make new mitochondria for you. Also, you know, intermittent fasting and doing keto can help because ketones, which are produced during times of fasting, they do have sort of signaling effects on the mitochondria. They can signal the mitochondria to uncouple and then they're uncoupling heat production from energy production. And it helps you basically have sort of more horsepower in your cells. So those mitochondria individually become less burdened by making all of this energy. Now, one of the things um, that you mentioned is red light therapy. And this is one of the things I've become so passionate about in the last year, because one of the most effective tools for supporting the mitochondria is doing some kind of red light therapy. So red light wavelengths are found in nature. They come from the sun and we naturally get it when we are outside all the time, but because we live these modern lifestyles where we're constantly indoors, a lot of us have become deficient in this, what I like to think of it as a, a light nutrient, you know, it is a nutrient and on the electron transport chain in our mitochondria, the fourth protein complex, which is cytochrome C oxidase, it is a chromovore and absorbs red light wavelength. So it helps activate and stimulate the mitochondria. So if you're not getting any red light or you're sitting in an office or in your home behind glass constantly, you're not going to be fully um, optimized in terms of, of the red light that you would get if you were living, you know, hundreds of years ago and you were outside all the time and outside during sunrise and sunset when red light is, you know, sort of the most prevalent. So one of the ways that you can make up for that deficiency is by investing in red light therapy panels and being so passionate about this, I decided to create my own line, which is a tone Lux uh, line in the past year. And they have some of the most powerful irradiance on the market, really low flicker, uh, really low EMFs, and they're just really powerful devices and it, it can benefit and support your mitochondria, but it also 
The, the latest research now is showing that what it also does is stimulate epigenetic factors and growth factors. So if you shine it on your face, you will stimulate growth factors for collagen and elastin, which is why it improves the appearance of the skin and makes it more youthful looking and softer. If you shine it on your muscle after a workout, it will help stimulate IGF one and you'll have more muscle growth. If you put it on, you know, an area where you've had hair loss, it can stimulate hair growth in that area. And that's, that's actually how it was first discovered is these Russian scientists were testing the safety of lasers on mice and they were getting all these skin improvements and regrowing hair. So that's how they kind of stumbled upon it. So red light therapy is a great way. Having red light therapy panels is a great way of supporting them. Uh, One of the next ways that I love is doing cold therapy. Um, ice baths or cryotherapy in some cases, I tend to prefer ice baths um, because they have more research back benefits. But uh, when you do cold therapy on a regular basis through, for example, an ice bath, you activate brown fat, which is, you know, very prevalent in the body when you're young, but you, we have less and less of it as we get older, we tend to just have a little bit around the neck area when you expose your body to cold on a consistent basis, your body starts making more brown fat and brown adipose tissue is white adipose that has more mitochondria in it. So you can turn tissue that is storing energy for you into metabolically active tissue, which is just amazing. And there's even one study where these people had an overactive tumor that was making them release adrenaline or sort of epinephrine and norepinephrine constantly, just like what happens when you do uh, ice baths. And these people developed brown fat all over their body. So you can't, it's not just in the neck area. You can basically have more of it on your entire body. And cold therapy is a really great way, you know, to do that. Um, And finally, there's, you know, it's really important to prioritize rest and recovery, you know, and also nutrient dense foods. And we're talking about the micronutrients because when you do, for example, fasted exercise, you will stimulate the process to have more mitochondria, but it's in the rest and recovery, like getting really quality sleep that all of the, those changes take place. So if you're not resting properly, you're not getting enough sleep, you know, especially at night, we have all this melatonin and melatonin, it turns out is this mitochondrial antioxidant, you know, so the sleep is a huge, huge factor in having really healthy mitochondria. And the last thing is there's some foods and supplements, uh, goat milk and goat cheese, which contains medium chain triglycerides or MCTs, because those stimulate ketones, they can supporting the mitochondria through, you know, signaling the mitochondria to uncouple uh, turmeric, dark chocolate, vitamin C. And then there's this new thing you've probably heard methylene blue, which a lot of people are talking about, uh, supports the mitochondria. So there's different supplements, you know, as well, but those are some of the the main ways that I've sort of come across in the research that really support the mitochondria. Did you know that our natural ability to digest food declines with age? This has a great deal to do with our body producing fewer enzymes, which are responsible for digesting food. Fewer enzymes oftentimes means more difficulty digesting food as well as bloating and gas. And if you're over the age of 35, like so many of my listeners, your enzyme levels have already begun to decline. That's why I'm a huge fan of enzyme supplementation. And the best digestive enzyme I have ever found comes from my friends at BioOptimizers called Masszymes. Masszymes is the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme I've ever seen or experienced with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor and 300 to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. I take Masszymes with my largest meal of the day, sometimes two, generally three, and it's made a big difference in my digestion. What makes this digestive enzyme most helpful is that it is particularly beneficial in helping to break down protein. Not properly breaking down your protein and digesting it creates a variety of problems from bloating to inflammation and beyond. Masszymes not only contains more protease, it contains 13 additional enzymes, including lipase for fat digestion, which work at every pH level from 2 to 12, in other words, at every stage of digestion. All of this makes Masszymes an ideal complement to any muscle building or fat loss diet. 
and you can try it risk-free. Their 365-day full money-back guarantee is the gold standard in the industry. And if you don't feel how Masszymes helps you upgrade your digestion and power through your food, their support team will give you a no-questions-asked refund. Go to biooptimizers.com and use code CYNTHIA10 to get 10% off your first purchase. That's www.bioptimizers.com slash Cynthia and use code Cynthia10 to get 10% off. One of my favorite ways to take care of my health is with appropriate electrolyte replacement. And my favorite brand is Element. We know that proper hydration leads to better sleep, focus, energy, and more. And we know that hydration isn't just about drinking water. Being optimally hydrated is about optimizing your body fluids ratios. And electrolytes are a component of proper hydration. Element is formulated with a science-backed electrolyte ratio, which includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And with the amount of travel that I do personally and professionally, one of the ways that I stay on track is with electrolyte supplementation while traveling. And we know that in traveling, the atmosphere in planes is kept at 10 to 20% humidity and dry air dehydrates us much more quickly, pulling more moisture from our skin and breath. This means that those of us that travel with some frequency need to hydrate even more. Properly supplementing electrolytes can help to prevent dehydration headaches, support our energy needs to minimize the effects of jet lag, and decrease the risk of blood clotting on long-haul flights. And Element is offering a free sample pack with any purchase. You want to go to www.drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia. That's drinklmnt.com Cynthia. My personal favorite is orange with a close second of grapefruit, but there's lots of great varieties and the free sample pack allows you to try all of the flavors out from the beauty of your own home. Full disclosure, I'd had like red light therapy on my radar. I was literally getting ready to purchase something and I've been using your devices for the past six weeks. And the things that I have noticed, you know, occasionally I'll do these crazy solid core classes with my husband. He's still pretty active. And so, you know, he gets sore from doing jujitsu and I get sore from doing solid core. And there's definitely an improvement in sore muscles, I'm definitely seeing changes in my skin and I'm a middle-aged woman. So I always say, you know, something that's non-invasive, that's effective. I'm all for it in terms of frequency of red light therapy Mm. or even cold therapy. Do you have like a starting point that you generally recommend, like do it two days a week, three days a week, what works best? The other piece of the cold therapy that I want to ask about is I know that there are some epigenetics that make some people not need as much cold exposure just due to genetics. And, and the reason why I'm saying this, like I can do cryotherapy, I can do a cold shower. If you stuck me in a plunge pool, I'm convinced it would be way, it would not even be hormetic stress. It would be like <laughs> a massive overwhelm. Maybe I'm trying to talk myself out of doing it, but I'm just curious, are, do you find that some people it's the dose of the hormesis that can be effective or is it really something that can be genetically mediated. Oh, I love this because there's so many things here. So with the cold therapy, there was a really interesting scientist who was recently on Huberman lab podcast, uh, Dr. Susan Soberg, and she's done some amazing research on cold therapy. And she actually determined sort of the minimum effective dose, which was 11 minutes per week over say two to three sessions. So that's like doing three sessions of like between three to four minutes. So it's really not a long period of time. But another thing that I discovered after I first started doing cold plunging is there's this thing called the turnover effect. And if you get in the cold bath and you don't go up to your neck, you don't actually activate the brown fat. And so sometimes I was doing it and I would just go to like my shoulders or here or even like half body and I would be freezing the entire time. But when I would go into my chin, 
it would activate the brown fat. And then within 30 seconds to a minute, I would be warm. So it's like just the psychological part of getting in definitely physically feels cold. But once you have that turnover, like your body feels warm, you start radiating heat, your mitochondria are going crazy, making all this heat for you. So you actually feel fine until it's time to get out again. (laughs) That's the hard part as well, but it's great in the summer, like, especially on a hot day, you know, it's a great way to, to cool off and it, it's so invigorating. And you then really feel energized because you create this like infrared sort of from your core radiates out. And then you have so many beneficial effects on, on your cells and, and your mitochondria. I'm not sure about like cold tolerance and genetics. I wouldn't know enough about that, but I know it's something that gets way easier and also very addictive. <laughs> like I, I had to stop myself sometimes from doing it too much because that is a stressor, right? So there's sort of a sweet spot, but I I love that this scientist, uh, Dr. Soberg actually figured out the exact amount because I was doing way more than that. I was like, oh, I only need to do 11 minutes a week, which is amazing. 11, it seems a lot more tolerable. I hate being cold. I'm one of those people. I loathe being cold. So for me, I was hoping you were going to say, you know, Cynthia, there's actually a study that suggests there's these genetically mediated factors that, you know, there are people who don't need as much hormetic cold stress as others do. That was just my, you know, selfish kind of, I was like, I wonder if there's any research out there that suggests that. Cause I know for me, like cold for me is it's like, I have to mentally be like really ready for it. And we live in a very hot, humid part of the East coast. And so for me, summertime, no problems doing cryotherapy, no problems doing cold showers, middle of winter when I probably need it more. Like I always yeah. say, when you're hesitant to do something, cause you don't really love it. It generally means you need to do more of it. You need to lean into that discomfort. I love that, you know, knowing that it's 11 minutes, that makes it <laughs> yeah. not seem quite so overwhelming. Yes. And in the winter is when it is the most helpful as you're saying, cause that's a lot of European cultures, Northern European cultures, they practice cold plunging and sauna as a way to replace the infrared heat from the sun that you get in the summer. So if you're outside a lot in the summer, you're getting tons of infrared, which is great for your cellular batteries. But in the winter, it's a great way to substitute for that. And it does make you more cold adapted. So you become less and less cold and yes. you, know, you start being that person who goes you know, out in shorts in the winter <laughs> that everyone's staring at. Like my teenagers, um, that's what you yeah. have to look forward to, Vanessa. And in you know, like 10 years, 15 yeah. years, you'll be calling me and saying, yes, I now understand. Now, are there benefits to doing like, is it more beneficial to do the cold? Fr- like if you're doing back to back, like let's say you're going to do red light therapy and you're going to do cryotherapy or cold immersion, is there benefits from getting f- cold first or second? So with the cold, one really important point to note is that if you are also focusing on growing your muscle and lean mass, you should always do your cold plunging before a resistance training workout, because if you do it right after you actually halt the process of muscle recovery and repair. So there's some studies recently showing that athletes were not getting as much muscle growth and strength from doing cold plunging right after. But if you do it before or you do it at least four hours after a workout, it's fine with the red light. So in terms of a framework for red light, you sort of don't want to do more than 20 minutes a day. It depends on the device you have and how powerful it is. Cause there's really, you know, this bell shaped curve when it comes to the, the benefits. So if you get too little, you won't see benefits, but if you get too much, you'll trigger the biphasic dose response and you also won't see results, but there are some things that you don't actually need that much time for. Like, for example, your face, you only need like four minutes because there's nothing between your face and the light. So you only need like, and that really helps me on days that are super busy. And I don't have a lot of time. Like when I used to think I have to do 20 minutes, no, just four minutes. I can work that into like any day. Right. And then if you're doing like deeper tissue repair with like the infrared or using the red light, then you would need to do it probably longer and like a little bit closer to the skin, depending on the device, but not more than, than 20 minutes a day. So like I'll alternate different parts, different body parts on different days. I like to do red light. I should mention as well that, you know, there's a commonly held belief that you cannot spot reduce on the body. And yet it turns out that with red light, you actually can, because you improve blood flow and circulation to those areas. So if you are wanting to reduce body fat while you're doing a 
fat loss phase, you can shine the red light panels on parts of your body that you would like to lose fat on, and you will increase the blood flow to that region, which means that it'll help fat be released from those tissues when you are working out after. So if you do a red light therapy session on those areas, you sort of precondition those body parts to get more blood flow. You can also do a warm shower on, you know, sort of heat up those parts of the body, which will also increase the blood flow, but you can also do the red light after a workout to help stimulate the muscle growth and repair, which we were talking about before. I like to do red light therapy after a cold plunge because it's a nice way to warm up. And like I shine it in the bathroom, it gets all like warm and cozy in there. I think it's a nice way to help your body. Yeah. Just like warm up a little bit. And it all depends on like what you like, but a lot of people say the best time to do it is early in the morning at sunrise and sunset, because that's when we have that higher concentration of red light naturally. But I usually do it in the morning. That's usually when it just like fits into my routine. I tend to be a morning exercise person in general. So for me, it's definitely makes it a whole lot easier when I'm like, okay, I have a PMF mat and it's one of my favorite Mm. things I do just to kind of decompress. And so it's part of, I've kind of gotten into this habit of like, where am I sore if I've done like a harder workout the day before? And like, where do I want to be targeted? And I love that it isn't time intensive because I think for many people, we're like, where do we fit all these? Where do we fit all the things in? But knowing that it's not a huge time commitment definitely helps. Well, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation, definitely touching on some topics that we have not spoken about on the podcast. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you to get your book, to connect with you about your amazing podcast, your products, you know, the tone device, which I'm really loving. And I love that it's, you know, it's like, pretty. It's not just effective, <laughs> but it's pretty. I was like this, you know, I feel like a lot of the biohacking devices are kind of, I mean, let's just be honest. They're like aesthetics. They're not particularly exciting, but this to me, it's like, it's colorful and it's nicely designed. So bravo. Thank you so much. That's one thing I've really focused on with my tone device, the breath ketone analyzer. I also wanted to make it more feminine and pretty. And the same with the tone Lux red light therapy panels, because I think so much of the biohacking tech is very masculine and it's it's sort of like created for men by men. So I wanted to create some pretty (laughs) aesthetically pleasing things. So you can find the tone device and the tone Lux red light therapy panels at ketogenicgirl.com. And feel free to send me a message if you have any questions about them. My book is Keto Essentials. It's on Amazon and the podcast is the Optimal Protein Podcast. And you can find that on all podcast platforms. And I now have taken over the torch from you. I'm co-hosting the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Melanie Avalon as well. So you can also find me hosting that every week. Wonderful. Well, it's been such a pleasure connecting. (laughs) Thank you so much, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 